Hey everyone, welcome to Brain Health with Dr. Nissen. In this show, we explore the universe's great unknown, the human brain. In my reflections and interviews with guests, we'll go to the forefront of psychiatry, neuroscience, nutrition, and medicine to see how we can enhance our mental health, sharpen our cognition, and reach better performance. This is Brain Health, and I'm Dr. Nissen. Let's dive right in. All right, welcome to Brain Health with Dr. Nissen. I am honored here to be uh, here today with Dr. Steve Mandel and his son, Sam Mandel, uh, who run the Ketamine Clinics of LA. Um, and uh, we're gonna be discussing ketamine, which is a treatment that some of you have heard about probably um, as, as a treatment for depression, for treatment-resistant depression. Um, but uh, more interestingly, as all this news is coming out about psychedelics, um, it's interesting to look at ketamine as another uh, medication that could be compared against the psychedelics that are in the news right now, um, and to kind of see what's similar, what's different, how they all compare. Um, so that's why I wanted to bring the Mandels here. So without further ado, uh, Sam and, and Dr. Mandel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dr. Nishan. It's really good to be here. Yes, thank you so much for having us. Yeah. So I, I like to sort of dive right in before I bore people with, uh, you know, too much about your laurels, about, you know, what you've accomplished, and rather, you know, go right for the jugular. What is it that you would want for people to take away from this conversation? Who are you asking? <laughs> we can start with you, Dr. Mandel. Ketamine is an amazing medicine for relieving depression and suicidality and PTSD. It works very well, like more than 70% of the time for any of those, more than that for suicidality. It works quickly. It's very safe. It's very fast. It should be available to anyone who's suffering from these afflictions. And I would just add to that, um, which is so well said, that there's a tremendous amount of uh, scientific research that proves what um, Dr. Mandel is saying. Uh, this is not an opinion or anecdotal, and I think that uh, there's a lack of knowledge and understanding, and we love to talk more specifically about what ketamine is, how it works, where it's come from. And um, I think it's really important for people to understand these things and not be bogged down with myths or with people who don't really have you know, the information. I mean, there's over 150 clinical trials now that have proven the efficacy of ketamine for mental health. And so it's way beyond um, an opinion uh, that it works and that it helps people. And that there's some very other, uh, some other agents that are coming out there, um, medicines, uh, psychedelic medicines that are very exciting and have great potential. And uh, there's also some important distinctions between them and ketamine. And we'd love to help people to understand that better. Awesome. Well, so that's given us a little bit of, uh, you know, some a taste test about uh, what's uh, what's going to come, what we're going to discuss more and more. Uh, so before diving in, could you each introduce yourselves, um, perhaps starting with Dr. Mandel and um, and tell, tell us a little bit about your background and, and the work that you do? I'm Dr. Stephen Mandel. I'm a physician. I'm a board certified anesthesiologist. Uh, I went to graduate school in political psychology and was completing I completed all my coursework and all my clinical work and was writing my dissertation when I had the opportunity to go to medical school. I went to medical school and became an anesthesiologist, continued really strong interest in, um, in ketamine. 
or in actually in mood disorders. When ketamine came out, uh, although I was an anesthesiologist, I was blown away because ketamine was a drug I was using in anesthesia. It was first approved by the FDA in 1970 for anesthesia. And I used it for decades, literally. It was the most widely used anesthetic in the world for several decades. It's still among the most widely used anesthetics in the world today. But when it came out in the, in the late 90s, in the 90s, that it was also relieving symptoms of PTSD, I was just blown away. How could an anesthetic do that? And I've devoted most of my life since uh, for the last 10 years to understanding that and applying it clinically. I'm uh, Sam Mandel. I'm the co-founder CEO of uh, Ketamine Clinics Los Angeles, and I am also Dr. Mandel's son. And uh, in this context, I'm his, his partner and his working alongside him to help bring this treatment to more people who are in need of it for seven and a half years now and devoted all of my time and energy to that cause. And it's been incredibly gratifying. Um, I've worked in a variety of industry uh, and have a, a real passion for mental health and depression and have a, had a lot of friends and family who have suffered from depression, suicide, addiction. And um, along the way, my journey has uh, led me uh, to want to be more and more involved in, in this space to help those who are dear to me and to help those in need. And, and uh, it's been really a beautiful journey as it's become more and more mainstream uh, over the years. Great. Um, so, you know, before we sort of talk about the efficacy and the safety of ketamine, perhaps we could talk a bit about what it is and how it works. Um, so, uh, Dr. Mandel, would you mind kind of leading us in that discussion of how exactly ketamine works and what it is? Sure. It's a fencyclidine derivative. Uh, it was discovered in a lab in the 50s. The fencyclidines were. Ketamine was actually synthesized in 1962. And um, it was a more gentle and more uh, efficacious and uh, shorter acting and had fewer side effects than PCP. It's a, it's a kind of cousin, chemically, molecularly of PCP. And uh, it became uh, an anesthetic. Uh, it works basically through the MDMA system, very different from any of the other psychoactive medicines. And it is very different molecularly from all of the other psychoactive medicines, even its cousins. Um, it's different chemical altogether. But it works via MDMA and AMPA and via inducing neuroplasticity by initiating a very elaborate cascade that starts with um, uh, brain-derived neurotrophic factor, which actually ends up in the proliferation of, of dendrites and in, in the uh, elaboration of, of more receptors. So receptor density greatly increases. Uh, we haven't actually proven this in humans. We see this absolutely inconvertibly in, uh, in uh, laboratory models. Great. It really works to cause new growth in the brain. Right. And, um, you know, you're, you're speaking about neuroplasticity, BDN, BDNF 
brain-derived neurotrophic factor is something that some of you may have heard about. It's something that uh, people describe as the miracle grow of the brain, um, helping to grow new neurons. Um, uh, so that's certainly uh, an attractive sort of component about ketamine. But something that's interesting about ketamine is, is what uh, Dr. Mandela is mentioning about NMDA. Um, so that's related to glutamate, which is, um, um, you know, a, a totally different neurotransmitter than, uh, than what you would see in most antidepressants that work on serotonin or on norepinephrine or, dor or uh, dop dopamine um, uh, levels at the, um, at the um, synapse. So, um, so, so it's a totally different mechanism from the things that are most commonly used for depression. Uh, and that's one thing that's really interesting about ketamine. Yeah, that's a really important uh, distinction as well as it's a really unique mechanism of action that is totally separate from the traditional antidepressant medications. And if I could also just add to that, in addition to the kind of neurochemical uh, cascade that's occurring, um, there's the experiential component of ketamine, whether it's being received intravenously, which is really the gold standard in the way that we do it at Ketamine Clinics Los Angeles, or it's being uh, done orally, sublingually, intramuscularly, uh, intranasally. I mean, these are all uh, different routes of administration that we can touch on later in more detail if you'd like. But um, one of the key things I wanted to add is just the experiential component where people can have this uh, kind of uh, separation of mind and body in a, in a unique way during the actual experience of the medicine that can be very therapeutic for uncovering old trauma or dealing with it, uh, quieting the kind of default mode network in the brain, which is that kind of chatter and noise and judgment that's often really plaguing a lot of people who suffer from PTSD, anxiety, and depression. And it's a unique opportunity to do some kind of inner work for people, whether you're working with a therapist at the time and doing, you know, CAP or CAP, uh, or you're not. Uh, either way, there's a lot of valuable work that can be done during the actual uh, treatment process as well. Yeah, so I think it'd be awesome to dive into that because Sam just brought up a really important point, which is that, you know, Dr. Mandel and I were talking about the neurochemical sort of impacts and the, and the the, the impacts directly on neurotransmitters that are occurring, but really stepping out, looking at the big picture, what's happening psychologically with the patients. Um, and, and, and that's when, you know, the default known uh, mode network, like you were just talking about, really comes into play. Um, and this dissociation that can occur, sort of separation of your, your mind and your body that um, for people that have experienced trauma, um, you know, could be part of, of how it creates some of that um, healing change. So uh, let's start with talking about, you know, how exactly it's given, what the different options are, um, and specifically how the intravenous ketamine that you all are providing uh, compares against intranasal spravato, which many people have heard of, um, or esketamine um, in its uh, sort of uh, chemical name, um, and kind of how, how those differ. Well, it's, it's a really good point because um, S-ketamine is, is, the, is the medicine in Spravato. And uh, ketamine, the racemic mixture we use is a 50-50 mixture of S-ketamine and R-ketamine. And um, the distinctions we're going to talk about uh, is very hard to keep track of. We're talking about two different, but intimately related molecules or a mixture of two and, a, and an isolation of one of those two. And we're talking about two different routes of administration. And the differences that people make much of between the two, it's easy to confuse 
the difference is due to route of administration with differences due to the molecule. The molecules actually, when we're able to compare them, both being given intranasally, which is what Spravato is approved for, or escanamine is approved for in the United States, or given um, intravenously, which is what uh, generic ketamine is approved for in the United States, and what both S-ketamine and generic ketamine are approved for in many other countries, uh, we see that the clinical differences, although they're important, are really quite minor compared to the root of administration differences, which are enormous. Intranasal ketamine, whether we give it by S-ketamine or whether we give the generic racemic mixture, and both are legal here, uh, the, um, the S-ketamine given intranasally is approved by the FDA for use for depression. The um, generic is an off-label use. In any event, intranasally, it's effective for depression and PTSD and suicidality around 40, 41, 42, maybe 44% of the time. The same chemicals given intravenously are effective uh, in most studies uh, around 71% of the time. And 71% is better than 44%. Or you can do that one in your head. Uh, in our clinic, and we do it a little differently, uh, we have an 83% success rate. That's over seven years, over almost 14,000 infusions, almost 4,000 patients. Meticulous records. Uh, we're getting 83% success rate. Success is measured by improvement in standard measures of depression, improving for, by more than 50%. That's the effect depression inventory, that's the Madras, that's the PHQ-9. Over how long? I don't know what you mean. How long do, do, is the duration of benefit or, or the extent of benefit? The, the, the extent of benefit is more than 50% and we don't call it success. The duration is extraordinarily variable. Mm. And we would love to have the bandwidth to do some studies on that. But yeah. we see about 12 weeks effective yeah. preservation of benefit. And it, the standard deviation is huge. We see people needing boosters in a few weeks. We see people who don't need boosters after a year, literally. Well, I was going to say, uh, yeah, on the, on the short side, a few weeks, we've had a handful of patients who have actually gone over two years after one initial series. And just for our, our listeners to just break it down so they kind of understand what we're talking about, we do a series of six infusions over two to three weeks. That's a pretty standard uh, protocol of IV infusions of ketamine for, for mood disorders. The infusions in our clinic are about 50 to 55 minutes long, but in the research, they're 40 minutes long. We provide a little bit more medicine over a little longer period of time, and that's one of the key distinctions as to why we feel like we're getting a, a notably better result. But six infusions over two to three weeks is a series then people come back for boosters, as Dr. Minow called them, which is typically a pair of infusions done one or two days apart from one another. Uh, they don't return, patients don't return for another complete series. They have boosters and maintenance as needed. And that really varies quite widely. As you were saying, we've seen people uh, only a few weeks. We've also seen people go over two years uh, without needing any additional treatment at all. That's definitely unusual and not the norm. The norm is more around the three-month uh, point. But Four months, five months, six months before needing a pair of boosters is not uncommon. 
Um, and a lot of it does depend upon lifestyle optimization, which we're big advocates for things like adequate sleep, nutrition, um, you know, fitness, uh, talk therapy, uh, among, you know, a list of other things that we encourage our patients to do. So those who are engaging in those activities are definitely, for the most part, getting a better and a longer lasting uh, result. But they get tremendous relief right off the bat. Mm -hmm. And that you're asking about the duration and we typically getting about 12 weeks. It's interesting, the interval between boosters tends to lengthen with the booster number, not decrease. So they're not accommodating, they're not getting habituated or acclimated in any way. They're actually learning to get more mileage out of, out of the treatments. Mm. But as Sam pointed out, they are not cures, they are treatments and they're not standalones. All the other things that benefit your wellness, including nutrition, sleep, exercise, important, a good relationship with a peer, talking therapy, all of these things really contribute to enhancing and extending the benefit that you get from ketamine. Hmm. But ketamine is the way to jumpstart uh, real profound depression hmm. because you can't engage in these things if you're too poop to pop, if you have, if you're hopeless, if you feel worthless, if you're full of self-loathing, if you can't even get out of bed, if you can't concentrate, if you can't focus, if food tastes like sawdust and, and music sounds like noise, um, and a hug feels like a, you're being entrapped, um, you need to do something. And, and these other adjuvants will help tremendously, but you need to, get out of that and, and the yeah. ketamine will help you to get out of that. Yeah, just to add one more thing. I was reading an article that was saying for depression, some tips, you know, like one of them setting goals and, you know, to what Dr. Manel was saying, it's like, if you really feel like it's a tremendous undertaking and people who haven't experienced depression have often a hard time wrapping their head around this. But if you feel like it's a huge undertaking to brush your teeth, if it's really an agonizing amount of work to take a shower and it's been, you know, two or you're going on your third day and you know what you really need to take a shower and it feels like, an overwhelming burden, goal setting is not in the picture. And it can, I mean, can really help to restore people's energy and motivation uh, to start to take on those things and to take care of themselves in a way that they can expand upon and build on that progress. And we make you know, no confusion with patients and whenever we talk about this, it's not a cure, it is a treatment and it's an important part of a bigger treatment plan. Yeah, Sam, I think that that was a really good point that you brought up because, you know, I think in general in this field of psychiatry and mental health, I, I think when the, I, I know a lot of people that think of, you know, psychiatrists, uh, anyone that gives out uh, medications for mental illnesses, they think, you know, oh, that's so shallow. What are you doing giving a pill? You really think that's going to make someone happy when they're, you know, when they're thinking that their life is crap and that, you know, and then it's not worth living anymore. But that's exactly, my point would be the exact same as yours, which is that, you know, the, the point of these treatments is not to bring somebody to enlightenment, you know, with one pill. It's rather to kind of get them going to, to sort of start the engine again so that they can get back into participating into the things that really keep us well and that really, you know, bring us to a fulfilling life, which are those lifestyle things that you mentioned, um, spirituality and exercise and relationship and those things they can only take place once you can really bring someone out of their mental illness, um, out of their really, you know, depressed episode. Uh, I'm so happy to hear you say that because there are wonderful psychiatrists and it seems like you're one of them as well or 
or will be doing more of that in your own practice uh, to, to bring that together as a whole, uh, treating the whole person. And there are a lot of psychiatrists out there and I wish that there were more who, who shared that view. You know, there's a lot out there who don't really bridge that either in their own work with the patient or helping to guide the patient to finding or establishing a connection with another professional who can assist them in that process, which is such an important one. And I think one of the biggest missing links in efficacy of mental health treatment today. Yeah. So just to kind of summarize for people before we go into the next part here, uh, ketamine, it's, um, there, there's two enantiomers of it, the S and the R, and um, that there is a medication that you may have heard of, which is a nasal spray, Spravato, that is just the S enantiomer of the ketamine. Um, but what the Mandels offer in their clinic and what I believe it, probably the majority of ketamine clinics offer is uh, the racemic mixture where you have both the S and the R um, given intravenously. So it's, you know, um, uh, put into your veins. Uh, so uh, this, you know, this, this is a treatment then that has been around for a while, like Dr. Mandel said, uh, first of all, being used in anesthesia and now being used for depression. Um, but nevertheless, it seems like there's been some controversy about it. And I think it'd be good for us to talk about that. Of why is there this, this controversy around ketamine? Um, why is it that, uh, you know, I recently, I saw the clip of you guys when you were on the doctors and there was sort of a debate about this. Um, so, so why do you think it's being debated? Um, and, uh, what would you say to those who think that, you know, ketamine, um, doesn't deserve to be an FDA approved treatment for depression and, um, or, or that it's dangerous and not quite ready yet? Um, what, what do you, what, what would you say about that? I think that most of them, uh, th that's just completely factually not accurate. Uh, ketamine uh, is ready. Ketamine is safer than any of the other agents, including those that are prescribed. Ketamine is an off-label use. One third of all psychiatric medications are prescribed off-label in the United States, one third. So we're in good company here. Mm. Um, Ketamine works much faster. It has a much lower rate of, uh, it has a much higher rate of effectiveness. Psychiatric medicines in general are effective 40 to 50% of the time and it has a modest duration of benefit before the benefit tends to subside. Uh, ketamine is effective at least 70% of the time. As I say, 83% in my clinic. Um, the withdrawal from ketamine is not a withdrawal in any sense of the word of uh, habit or, or addiction or habituation. It means it goes away. The withdrawal from many of the psychoactive medications, including particularly Cymbalta and some of the other like Cymbalta-like drugs, is extraordinarily difficult and uncomfortable for patients. I say the most frequent psychiatric medicine that I know of, it's not exactly psychoactive, is, are the benzodiazepines. And withdrawal from them is hellish and extraordinarily right. difficult for a great many patients. And their benefit greatly diminishes very shortly and their, their liabilities tend to be maintained or even increased with time. So I would like to sort of guide this in, by starting with this framework, which is, you know, um, that ketamine in, in your practice and 
in, uh, in most places, as long as it's not given as this bravado nasal spray is being used off label. So to what component do you think this contributes to the controversy and, um, yeah. and, and what thoughts do you have about that? Well, I, I, I should have mentioned, may I say just for a second, ketamine has three distinct populations of use. Mm -hmm. There's the enormous population worldwide of people who use ketamine to provide anesthesia for other humans and for animals. And it's fabulous and it works and there's no controversy. In fact, the World Health Organization thinks it should be available to every country. Every country's pharma, pharmaceutical lists the 50 essential medicines that every country should provide to its citizens or make it available to its citizens include only two anesthetics. And one of them is ketamine. So that's one population. Another population is a population of abuse. And there are extensive populations of abuse of ketamine. And they range for people who are using ketamine for self-medication, the way some people use alcohol or marijuana or opiates, because they're suffering and they don't have the uh, perspective or the resources to seek help, they're self-medicating. Mm -hmm. And then there's a population that is really using it as a, a means of providing themselves with oblivion. And in that population, ketamine can be pretty dangerous and pretty outrageous and produce some very nasty side effects if people persist in its use for long periods. Those side effects are not seen in people who are treated with ketamine for depression and suicidality and PTSD by physicians, by caregivers. Right. Dosage range in those three populations, the anesthesia population, the recreation population, and the therapeutic population, that's the third one that I didn't really describe. The dose ranges are grossly distinct and really don't overlap. So um, it's kind of a non-starter. If you want to demean ketamine, you point to the ketamine that the guys in the street are using it and killing for. Mm -hmm. The way you might with heroin. If you wanted to demean um, hydromorphone, which is um, the ketamine we use in the clinic for relief of, of, of behavioral health problems is a whole different dosage range given by a whole different route of administration. It does not have the same liabilities. Yeah, I'd love to jump in there as well and say, you know, Ketamine is not physically addictive like opioids or alcohol or other drugs that, that Dr. Manuel is talking about. It's just not, people might use it, whether it's, you want to call it recreational use or you want to call it self-medicating or, you know, some people might be using it for one or the other or both, but it might be adulterated. They don't even know necessarily if they're doing ketamine all the time. And even if they were, it's typically snorted um, in, in amounts of 20 times what we're giving IV in the clinic. So there's, again, that key distinction of root of administration. And they're, they're taking a lot all at once up the nose, whereas we're providing a gradual and, and steady infusion for 50 minutes. And it's obviously uh, tailored to meet the needs of the patient based on their age, their weight, and other factors. So they're getting, it's a very, very different thing. Um, as far as off-label goes, just to clarify for listeners who may not know, um, off-label simply means that a medicine has been found to be effective for something other than what it was originally approved for, or for a population uh, demographic other than what it was originally approved for. And I think that um, to answer your question, Dr. Nissen, as far as the kind of stigma around this, I think it really boils down to an education gap in most cases. 
And people just don't understand how these things work, how medicines come to market, how they come to be available to people. And uh, they think, wow, if it's not FDA approved, then maybe the FDA disapproved it or, or said it's bad or it's wrong or there's something bad about it. Since uh, new medicines from idea to approval take you know, years and on average about a billion dollars um, before they are available on the market. Um, a medicine like ketamine that's already approved and available, adding a new indication, which in this case would be for the treatment of you know, depression or other mood disorders, uh, would probably cost tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. And because uh, ketamine is a generic and uh, nobody can recoup that investment, no one wants to spend that money. So uh, there's no way to, to sell you know, ketamine after that for these indications and, and, and gain back your investment. So that's why no one has really done it. It'd be great if some you know, philanthropic entity would because it would really change the country and the world because depression is the leading cause of disability in the United States. It's the leading cause in the world and it's only getting worse and it gets worse every year as the suicide. I mean, over 44,000 people complete suicide in the US alone every single year. So these are huge, huge issues. Um, the pharmaceutical companies though are out to create uh, medicines and, and treatments that they can profit from and, and recoup their costs. So they're looking for the next thing and ketamine is uh, probably gonna stay off label for the foreseeable future though, who knows? So I, th I think we've heard a lot about the, well, first of all, kind of it, how it is that ketamine um, is being used in an off-label matter and how that compares against uh, being used in an FDA-approved matter um, and that that doesn't necessarily equate to differences in, uh, in evidence. Um, and uh, something else that I wanted to touch upon as we talked about all the benefits of ketamine is talk about the risks. You, you two are clearly you know, uh, proponents of, of ketamine. Um, but you did touch upon one of the risks that, you know, that's known with ketamine is the, the possible abuse potential. What are some other risks and, and specifically with the abuse potential, um, how can that be controlled in a way where people can benefit from ketamine, you know, without, um, you know, uh, developing some sort of addiction or, or something like that? We don't really see addiction in, uh, in our population, Nick. And I think it's because of the root of administration. When you take ketamine and you put it up your nose, you get an incredible rush. The delta, the rise time, it's, it's like a rocket ship. You really get, you get high. And if you want to keep that altitude analogy, when you give ketamine therapeutically intravenously, you gain altitude very gradually and it's a lower maximum altitude. And most importantly, to distinguish ketamine infusions from ketamine pushed intravenously or pushed up the nose, it's sustained for a period of time. And it's during that sustained level flight, that time at altitude, that the therapeutic work goes on, that the default mode network gets, gets quieted, that the dialogue around what happened in the trauma that's continuing to cause symptoms today gets reworked. What happened in the trauma is immutable. The narratives we tell ourselves around what happened are very plastic and that work can take place during this rather tranquil time at altitude. 
when you're yo yo-yoing or rocket shipping, uh, all you have time is say, oh, wow, and not time to do therapeutic work. Right. I also think it's important, and I think, you know, we, we should touch on some of the other aspects of the question, but I just want to quickly clarify that, you know, again, ketamine is not physically addictive. You know, people who are using alcohol, op opioids, a lot of other substances can become physically ill and become really physically dependent upon them, or they can get sick. Uh, ketamine is not like that. It's a more of a mental addiction where they are looking for an escape. And, you know, some people misuse food in the same way. They're looking for a rush or, you know, a sugar high or being completely, you know, um, beyond satiated with the meal and the kind of high that comes with that. Uh, so it, it's really a, a more of an escape than it is an actual addiction in, in that respect. But, you know, as far as clinically, what we see, we don't see any long-term side effects. Short-term uh, side effects uh, are a little dizziness or nausea that occurs usually. Um, if it happens, it happens after the infusion is complete and can persist for anywhere from you know, 10 or 20 minutes to maybe a couple of hours. Uh, fatigue or feeling kind of tired and wanting to just rest for the remainder of the day is quite common. Um, obviously dissociation during the infusion, but we don't consider that a side effect. We consider that an important part of the treatment. Um, that dissociation subsides as soon as the infusion is stopped. It begins to subside as soon as the infusion is stopped and typically is pretty well gone 15, 20 minutes later. And people are able to you know, get in an Uber or Lyft or have a friend or family member, which is our preference, take them home. And they're able to walk and speak and there's no, they're not really, they might again feel a little tired, maybe a little dizzy. They've had a drink or two, but they're not really uh, inebriated. So there's, and we're not seeing long-term side effects. We don't see people who are craving it or looking to come in too frequently or wanting ketamine from us more than is clinically indicated. We just don't really see that. We actually get referrals from a number of addiction psychiatrists who are helping people with opioids and with alcohol to use ketamine as part of a program for helping them to strengthen their resistance to cravings. Mm. Ketamine is very effective in helping patients to resist their cravings for a number of substances, including alcohol and opioids. The first use of ketamine, other than as an anesthetic that I'm aware of, was Krupitsky in Russia in the 1980s, using it for hardcore alcoholics with spectacular results. Well, good. So we've discussed a bit about you know, what ketamine is, um, how it is, uh, how it's being used in your clinic, how that compares against um, other uses of ketamine or S-ketamine. Um, and uh, we talked about how it's effective and how it, the sort of effectiveness you've seen and some of the um, side effects and um, sort of um, concerns that people have brought up about it and, and what you would, you know, and how you would respond to that. I think a good thing for us to dive into next is about ketamine as a psychedelic would you say that it is a psychedelic or not and why? And, and you know, in light of all the discussion about psychedelics now, kind of where do you see ketamine fitting into this? Ketamine is definitely a psychedelic. A psychedelic is not a thing. A psychedelic is something that produces a certain impact on the psyche. Mm -hmm. Ketamine definitely does that uh, as much or more so than any of its um, sisters and brothers. It's extraordinarily different from them uh, in terms of its background and its chemistry and the way it produces its effect neurologically and neurochemically, but it is a psychedelic. Yeah, I think if you wanna break out uh, kind of two categories of the types of psychedelics out there, there are the botanicals 
right? Those are the plants like magic mushrooms, the active ingredient in those is psilocybin, um, ayahuasca, um, you know, uh, peyote, among others. Um, and then there are these synthetics, those things made in the lab, ketamine, MDMA, which is the active ingredient of what a lot of people know of as ecstasy. Um, LSD. I'm, I'm sorry, what was that? LSD. LSD, exactly. Thank you. Yep. And then, and of course, there are others in both categories. Um, and there are some important distinctions, you know, between the two. The, the majority of the interest in psychedelics that are to be used medically or for mental health today are uh, primarily what's the only one that's legal and available now in the U.S., which is ketamine, and then very soon after, MDMA and psilocybin, which are, there's a lot of very exciting clinical research being done right now, uh, and they're rapidly moving towards FDA approval and then adoption, uh, widespread adoption for, for mental health. Um, you know, there's also some interesting distinctions between the groups of people who are interested in psychedelics. We may or may not really want to talk about here today, but just for the purposes of the conversation, there is the medical, there's mental health, there's the spiritual, uh, and those who are looking for recreation or self-medication. Um, and there's probably a couple others too, depends on how granular you want to get. But there's how deep do you want to go, Nick? I'm loving all this. It's it's so true yeah. because you know for people who listen to this and they they hear us talking about LSD, they hear us talking about magic mushrooms. You know, it's it, it's for a long time these things have been uh, you know kind of piled in with the hippie movement or with street drug culture, and and now it's starting to fuse with modern medicine. Um, so I, I love where you're going with yeah. this. Yeah. Well, it's so easy for people to be dismissive, and I completely understand it. I don't knock them for it. I just ask that they listen and open their ears a little bit after their dismissiveness and, and maybe allow the possibility that there's a little more to the story because everybody knows somebody who, you know, ate some shrooms and freaked out and went to the hospital. I shouldn't say everybody. A lot of people know someone. A lot of people know someone who took a hit of acid and thought it was a good idea to do something stupid that might have harmed themselves or someone else. And they fortunately had a friend around or somebody who prevented them from doing it. Um, and a lot of people know people who had life-changing, positive healing experiences and spiritual experiences and all kinds of great things too, but there's definitely a kind of uh, connotation with uh, psychedelics that is a lot of the stigma that we deal with around ketamine is to, and to kind of bring it back to your earlier question as to like why it isn't more uh, popular, what the naysayers have to say, and I think that stigma is absolutely going to be difficult to overcome with MDMA and psilocybin, which are in clinical trials now for PTSD, for depression, and seeing, you know, good results. There's some really, really important distinctions between them and ketamine. So while Dr. Mandel said, yes, ketamine is a psychedelic, it's also really in its own category in and of itself, very different from MDMA and psilocybin. And I don't know if you want to expand on that a little more, Dr. Mandel. And of course, I have things I love to say about it too. But as to why, how ketamine is kind of, why and how ketamine is in its own category when compared to these other psychedelic medicines. Nick wrote down very nicely uh, early in our discussion uh, the four basic neurotransmitters. Uh, it may not have been clear to the audience that the, the, of the four, the, the glutamate, the dopaminergic, the uh, norepinephrine, and the uh, serotonergic. Um, the um, glutamate is 85% of all neurotransmission. The other three are the other 15%. So it's glutamate that's ubiquitous in the brain. And that's, ketamine affects uh, glutamate. 
the other agents we're talking about basically affect serotonin, norepinephrine, or dopamine. So they're very different. Uh, take MDMA. Uh, I think it has great promise therapeutically. Uh, I'm an enthusiast, if you will. It's a brand new drug. It's been given to a few million people uh, a few tens of thousands of times. Uh, it's basically methylene, dioxymethamphetamine. It's an amphetamine class of medicine. It's a derivative of amphetamine. And it has speed effects. That's why it gets people hot and gets their, their uh, temperatures up and their um, feet dancing and their heart pounding and they get hyperthermic and they get prostate and afterwards they are drained. They're exhausted. They're depleted. Their dopamine is gone. Or their serotonin is gone. Well, hey, that's okay. Um, and that doesn't mean it won't have great therapeutic benefits. But it's not good old glutamate. <laughs> it just isn't. And these are empirical questions. These are not shoot from the hip questions. We're talking about people's lives here. We need to go slow and be cautious. And I'm, I'm not a naysayer at all. I'm really enthused about seeing these things used therapeutically, but let's not get ahead of ourselves. Well, if I may clarify, when you say it's MDMA has been given millions of times, it's, it, it's, you're talking about the street use population over, you know. Therapeutically, hardly at all. But therapeutically, uh, it's been given, what, maybe uh, hundreds or maybe thousands at this point? Uh, thousands. Research, a couple thousand times. So, you know, and same thing with psilocybin or, you know, again, you know, magic mushrooms used in ceremony, spirituality, recreation, lots of different uses over probably thousands, literally thousands of years in many different cultures. And yet we don't have very much data. So, you know, you have this, this substance that has been around for a long time and we have, you know, it's bits and pieces of anecdotes from all over the world, but there's not any real scientific data except as of late. And so these are really important distinctions, whereas ketamine, you know, FDA approved in 1970, we have, you know, 50 plus years of a tremendous amount of safety and efficacy data. And even over the last 20, 25 years in its, quote, newer application uh, for a, as a mental health treatment, still 25 years, you know, thousands and thousands of administrations, probably tens of thousands at this point with clinical research and over many more years, as far as long-term safety, efficacy, et cetera. And in our clinic, almost 14,000 infusions to almost 4,000 individuals. And we track a tremendous amount of data. We're not doing formal research, but we do have a lot of data. And we've seen that ketamine for depression, PTSD, suicidality, it works, it works quickly, it's safe. And there's been no reports of long-term side effects when used clinically, ketamine as an anesthetic or for mental health. In other medicines, we just don't know. And they seem to have great early promise, but we do need a lot more data and a lot more time before we can really fully embrace them. And uh, those are some really, you know, I think really, really important distinctions. I might also just quickly add a lot of the others or the other two that we're talking about are very tightly integrated with psychotherapy for their therapeutic benefit. Ketamine can also be used uh, with uh, psychotherapy uh, through CAP, as it's called, ketamine-assisted psychotherapy or ketamine-enhanced psychotherapy, which is CAP, which is a little bit of a different structure. But using the substance to do therapeutic work, uh, 
but ketamine is also very, very powerful on its own um, as just a standalone treatment, not standalone from the uh, lifestyle optimization that we, we recommend or from therapy uh, after treatment. But as far as during the actual treatment, um, IV infusions of just ketamine are very therapeutic for what they produce in and of themselves. And that's another important thing for people to recognize. Mm. So it seems like you both would, would certainly include ketamine as, as a psychedelic based on the effects that it has for people. Um, and it seems like compared against MDMA and psilocybin, um, as, a, as opposed to being a head-to-head head -head comparison about the efficacy or you know, how safe it is or, um, or, or how well it works, uh, it seems like just looking at it um, as, as, as far as sort of congregate data, that, that your argument is that ketamine has more data, more years of use, and that while these other treatments are exciting, they're, they're new. And so there's more uncertainty about uh, both their efficacy and their safety. Well, Nick, also the way it works with these agents, uh, we don't really know how MDMA is going to be used, but as it's been used in the ways that we do know it, um, where it's been widely available, if not legal. Um, you take it, it takes about half an hour to come on and it lasts about three hours. And it leaves you pretty flat. Uh, ketamine infusions, uh, you start an infusion and uh, you're where you need to be in about 10 minutes. And we turn it off and you're street ready within 20. Now, I hope that they'll be able to do that with, with mushrooms and with uh, MDMA. And I hope that because I really want to see these things used to relieve these kinds of suffering. And I want it to be widely applicable and scalable. And if these drugs are going to take that long and have such a long ramp up and a long recovery time, it's going to be very hard to scale them. Mm. Intravenous ketamine is extremely scalable. And it's very safe in a way that we know when it's over, in a way that you don't know so much with mushrooms or, or with uh, MDMA. And I think, you know, just to say it's as far as, um, you know, the listeners understanding this stuff, I think it's important because they are most likely going to become FDA approved, whereas it's very good chance that ketamine will remain in off-label use. And with that FDA approval will bring a, a sense of uh, kind of increased legitimacy to them. It'll provide for ho hopefully insurance coverage and a number of other things that will come along with that that ketamine may not have. So we're not biased in any way except for what's evidence-based and what works. And I think that it's important for people to know a little bit of this stuff and how these processes, they can make an informed decision about what's best for them. That's really helpful. Um, well, I wanna thank you both. I know uh, this has been a long discussion. We've, we've covered a lot of different topics. Uh, one last thing that I love to cover and love to ask uh, people who are on the show is, you know, aside from ketamine, aside from psychedelics, um, and aside from anything obvious, in the theme of brain health um, being the, the title of the, of the podcast, what is something that you find to be helpful for your brain health that um, is, you know, might be a little unexpected or something that you're trying out uh, recently that, that people may not have heard of? 
Yeah, I, I like to go in the woods and sit and meditate. And that's not really new, I guess, but it really works for me. Mm. Uh, it's, it's not something I can just quick rush and do in an office, but when I can get to that, or particularly when I can go to sea on a small boat and get in touch with nature and with what's going on in my own head and getting the two together, I guess it's not very novel, but I, I recommend it highly. That's great. How about you, yeah, Sam? Yeah, mine's, mine's kind of the same, you know, not to be boring, but I, I'm not onto, you know, sometimes I think we're always looking for the newest, latest, greatest, you know, uh, amazing thing. And I, I think some of you guys got to take it back to the simpler times and getting out in nature and not having uh, your cell phone in your hand all the time and disconnecting from technology and reconnecting with yourself and the world around you is incredibly powerful. It's nothing new. And I don't think it'll ever change as being one of the most powerful things that you can do for your brain health. Uh, I'm personally on a computer on my phone almost from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to sleep every single day. And I think a lot of us are, whether it's for work or for pleasure, we're always tuned into some sort of technology. And I think that's a pretty disruptive thing. And so I try to take the time when I can to, to disconnect from it. And I find that to be very restorative. All right. Well, there you go. A reminder from the Mandels to get outside, get some fresh air and uh, get in touch with nature. Um, all right. Well, uh, sending people off here, how can they get in touch with you if, they're, if they have any questions or want to learn more about what you do? Yeah, we have a, a website with tons of information. It's ketamineclinics.com. It's K-E-T-A-M-I-N-E. -E, and then clinics with an S, C-L-I-N-I-C-S.com. Uh, you can call us 310-270-0625. Uh, we have really wonderful staff here, very compassionate, who are happy to speak with you. There's no obligation. And we're on social media, on uh, Instagram and Facebook, Ketamine Clinics LA, and on Twitter, Ketamine Clinics. And uh, we're more than glad to, uh, to talk to you. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Anderson. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Hey listeners, some of you have so kindly asked how you can support the podcast. You can help by supporting us on Patreon, so please kindly find our Patreon link in the show notes. You can also support us by leaving a review, so please let me know what you think about the show by leaving a review on iTunes. You can find me on Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook as Dr. Nissen. And it's important to note that this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. And the use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is content of this podcast and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.